0: Mark is a priest of the prelature of Wist Day and the chaplain of the River's Academy and and the town educational foundation in Chicago. He preaches recollections and gives spiritual direction in Chicago. So welcome, Father Mark. St. Jose Maria Institute, Father Jim who will make a cameo appearance later. Mm-hmm. And uh, Elia Rivera Barb who has done so much to organize this, and thank you for Mitch Rains, who's helping us with the audio and the video. I want to have a little bit of fun today. I don't want it to be just sort of informational download, and and that's it. So the way I've sort of organized this is I want to give a 45-minute talk three times, one on his bio, one on the joy of the gospel, and the third on the Senate post and pre talk about different issues and then have 15 minutes of time for questions, answers, hopefully there will be some answers. And if I can't answer it, maybe one of you can. It's always dynamic to speak to a crowd because you have such a wealth of experience and knowledge and wisdom. So I, I draw on that too, I and mean this is for me as well. So I sort of enjoy that. So we wanna make that you know, a nice day and obviously we've, we've got a nice setup here at the Arb as they call it, the Morton Arboretum. So we thank them for this particular venue. It is phenomenal. I, I thought I, I dressed improperly when I came this morning and everybody was enjoying <laughs> <and laughs> I thought there were a thousand people here and I thought boy this is really gonna be good. <laughs> they came to see the flowers and not me. <laughs> no lot of flowers out there. So that's sort of the setup. I think that that's the general setup. If, if anybody has any burning questions in the middle of my talk, and you just need to raise your hand, clarification, that's fine. I'm good with that. You know, it's good to break it up once in a while if you want. It. If not, it's fine too. You know. So the first thing that I want to do is to set the tone, and to set the tone, sixteen sixteen. And one time I was in Rome, and I was taking care of this boy who was from the United States and I was showing him around. It was during the university congress that they have every year. And we were going into St. Peter's. He was Protestant. I I can't remember which denomination. And he came in and he walked into St. Peter's and he looked up and he saw these huge letters all the way around the roof line. And he goes, what is that? What does that say? And it begins, Tu es Petrus. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 16 16. An easy Bible bullet to remember. And so it's just sort of dawned on me that this boy, you know, who's Protestant, you know, what is this? You know, who is Peter? I didn't go into it. I didn't say, you know, and you don't have Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that, right? I mean, you know, because he wasn't ready for that. <laughs> but it is kind of interesting that maybe later he'll remember that, because he, he was thinking a little bit along those lines. So we see, you were Peter and upon this rock. This is the man chosen for our times by God. Elected by the cardinals, by the Holy Spirit. The cardinals helped. I was just thinking about how they do the election process. Whatever happened to the old short straw thing? <laughs> Probably because in the Middle Ages they were doing games or something and coloring the straws. And <laughs> so in any event, he is the man who's chosen by the Holy Spirit. And St. Jose Maria would say, one of his famous phrases, omnes competro adiesum Maria," all with Peter to Jesus through Mary that we have to be with Peter. And our, our founder would say, Saint Jose would say, you can't go wrong, you really can't go wrong by looking at that person and saying, we must be with Peter. And he would say, whoever he is, we will love him. And before the election, you know, as our prelate, the successor of our founder, now the successor of a blessed, his, his, his successor is now blessed, blessed Alvaro del Portillo said, you know, we will love whoever he is. Will we like him? We may not. He's Argentinian. <laughs> By the way, are there any Argentinians Because <laughs> you know, they even say of, their, of themselves, you know, that the, the joke is about the Argentinians. They say, you know, how do you say ego? And they say Argentino. <laughs> and then they say, because all of us have a." well now that is true that is so true it's fascinating to me in any event we see he's the man who's called for these times and we have to realize that that's providential and, and more than what he says and what he doesn't say or the way he says it all these different factors you know we <laughs> you know sometimes we don't like our own dads my dad's 86 now you know and he might say the wrong thing or might say the right thing that I don't want to hear or whatever, however you want to look at that. Right? So we have to we have to look at a big, you know, the big picture here that he is Peter. So the first thing that I'd like to talk about is his bio. And there is a lot of information now. All of a sudden this man becomes astronomical, right? Everything he's done, everything he said is like under scrutiny. And so I will be drawing on from, you know, drawing from a number of different sources, Uh, probably my primary sources. The first one is Pope Francis, Keys to His Thought, by a priest by the name of Mariano Fazio, who was the head of Opus Dei in Argentina. We were in Rome together. We share the same birthday. He's four years ahead of me. He went to bring the letter to the Pope, who he knows very well, because he was with him in Argentina. The Pope said, You got this appointment because you know me. That's what they're going to say. And he said, You're probably right. It's kind of interesting, right? Because he knows him, and in a sense, he knows his mind, and he will serve in that capacity to know him. But he wrote this book quite early on, uh, you know, just a month or two after he was elected. So this is this is very important, it's the keys to his thought, it's very profound. The second book which just came out, is called The Great Reformer, Francis, The Making of a Radical Pope by Austin Ivory. You know, some people might have ordered it, but it took like a month to get, it's very interesting. He did a lot of research, a lot of personal research, went to meet the people, talked to them about him, got anecdotes, personal stories, and, and did research, really, really really nice job. I've I've, I've enjoyed it. And then of course, I also rely upon witnesses, people that I know, because I've I've been in Rome with a number of Argentinians. I know different people from from different places who have known people who have known him, so second-hand stuff, sometimes first-hand things. very, Very, very close encounters, you know, with the Holy Father. As as cardinal, as bishop, etc., there will be a few stories that will come out here. So, to begin with, we know, you know, his family and his youth, and I don't want to go through all the details, but certain certain things really impacted him. You know, starting with the fact that he was born in December, and it was a different season than it is here, right? But he was baptized on Christmas Day, nineteen thirty-six. And that's also fascinating, that the parents you know, a week later, baptize their son, right? there's something to be baptized, so the last two popes, you know, Benedict was baptized on Easter on the Easter vigil, born in the morning, And right? that's why he's got such a great intelligence the Holy Spirit was at work right away but Jorge Mario Bergoglio was baptized on Christmas Day I know a couple here years we had their last child on Christmas Day so, you can see baby else, so That is very interesting just from the beginning, right? That that he's born on this day, you know, and he is, you know, into a Catholic family, an an Italian immigrant family. And I think the figure that struck him the most was his grandma Rosa. And you'll hear stories, you'll read stories about her. She was, as they say, (laughs) a piece of work. (laughs) She was in Catholic action in Italy, and she literally would get on the soapbox and denounce Mussolini. She actually got up in church once, and I don't know if it was during mass. I don't think so, but she got up to the pulpit denouncing Mussolini. So she was a firebrand, and she is sort of the understudy of Jorge Mario Bergoglio. She's the one who raised him because her his mother was, you know, just inundated with things. And and uh, we'll see later she gets sick; she's paralyzed for a couple of years when he's growing up. These are powerful things that happen to him, so he he grows up in this in this immigrant family the italian family he learns italian he's roman he's italian his father has a lot of piety mario and he also loves soccer and so he leads the rosary every night and then goes to his famous team san lorenzo and he's a, he's a normal man he's an accountant like myself a bean counter as they say and he makes a living, a very humble living. You know, just, they're not, as they said, they're, they're poor, but they live with dignity, right? So he has these roots and, and he's with the people, right? He loves the people. And I, I think, you know, it's interesting, like we see that you know, somehow he's an Italian immigrant and, it, and it's, it, it's, it's fascinating to see that this affects him and, and almost like, I hate to say, it, but like he's got dual personality. One thing is his Hispanic side. Another thing is his Italian side. And I know a cardinal down in Peru who basically said to him, you know, Jorge said, "What happened to you? You were completely different than you were, who were in South America." And he said, "Well, God just told me not to worry about that anymore." And he just let loose, so to speak. And he just, just had he was just more reserved, you know, more quote humble. And, and I just think his Italian side. <laughs> but you also have to know something about the Argentinians, and the Argentinians are very special. And you know that they, they, they a lot of Italian influence, right? They're Hispanic, but you know a lot of people say they're very proud. And I would like to say, well, I, you know, I don't, it's not exactly that way. They're very confident, and it's different. It's—it's—you it's, can be humble and be confident at the same time. And I think that's something that he had, you know, growing up, you know, in, in, his, in his life. Now, we know the next sort of main thing that hit him was this infirmity in which he almost died, where he lost part of his lung, and he almost died. And he learned two things, especially from Sister Tortolo. I think that's how you pronounce it. But he learned mercy, and he learned the beauty of the cross, of suffering. That experience changed his way of looking at reality at life. Uh, there's another time in his life when he actually almost dies too. I something internal. Uh, I don't, I, I, it's technical, but it's more of an intestinal problem. I mean, he almost died. So he's had a couple brushes with death in this respect health-wise. But then we know that he, as he talks about his, the moment of surprise, September 21st, 60 years ago, 19, as he, as he says, you know, that when he was 21 years old, he talks about this. He says, he's talking to the, uh, the youth of Cagliari. He says, Dear young Sardinians, or the Sardinians, the, young, the third thing I want to tell you in this way, I am answering the other two questions, is that you two are called, called to become fishers of men. Don't hesitate to spend your life witnessing joyfully to the gospel, especially among your peers. I want to tell you of a personal experience. Yesterday, I celebrated the 60th anniversary of the day when I heard Jesus' voice in my heart. I am telling you this not so that you will make me a cake. He says, that's not why I'm saying it. However, it is a commemoration. 60 years since that day. I will never forget it. The Lord made me strongly aware that I should take that path. I was 17 years old. Sorry, I thought 21. 17 years old. Several years passed before this decision, this invitation to com- to become concrete and definitive. So many years have gone by, with some successes and joys, but so many years with failures, frailties, sin. 60 years on the Lord's road behind him, be- beside him, always with him. I have no regrets, I have no regrets. Because I feel like Tarzan, I feel like I'm strong enough to go ahead. He said no, because I, have, I have not regretted it, always. In other words, even in the darkest moments, I've always been with Jesus. I'm glad about these 60 years with the Lord. However, let's move ahead. <laughs> so, it's interesting. Okay, Here's a man that was struck by God. We know the story. He was going to school. There was a big festival day of school that year. and He was going into school, and on his way, he decided to go to confession. He saw this priest. He followed the priest into the church, who was a priest not even from the parish. He was just sort of in residence there for a while, he went to confession, and God touched him. God changed his life, and that's why you'll see in his life how many times he talks about the God of surprises. In fact, that's one of one of my friends who I studied with in Rome. When I asked him, I said, "Well, you know, what do you, you know, what can you tell me, you know, about Jorge Mario Bergoglio?" And he said, "All I have to tell you is that he will surprise you." <laughs> so he is a man of surprises. And he knows that God is a man of surprises. Well, he <coughs> decided later, he was went into the, the, the seminary for the diocese, and he, the Jesuits were very extremely you know, they were particular, they were very selective. And he didn't think he could make it right into the Jesuits. So he went to the diocesan <laughs> seminary, but then he was accepted later into the Jesuit into the Jesuits. And he said there were three reasons why he wanted to do that: discipline, missionary, you know, missionary spirit, and the spirituality of St. Ignatius. These are three things that really affected him in a great way. I'm not gonna go through his whole career, right? But we know that he had his novitiate. He went through a bachelor's in philosophy, psychology. He taught theology. After 11 years of being in the Jesuits, he was ordained in 1969. And I want to read to you on his retreat, before his ordination, what he wrote, his personal creed, Jorge Mario's personal Bergoglio on page 100 and 101 of The Great Reformer. He says, and I think it's worth reading, because just it, sh- it shows you who he is. I want to believe in God the Father who loves me like a child, and in Jesus the Lord who infused my life with his spirit to make me smile, and so carry me to the eternal kingdom of life. I believe in the church. I believe in my life story, which was pierced by God's loving gaze, who on that spring day of the 21st of September came out to meet me to invite me to follow him. I believe in my pain, my fruitless, made fruitless body egoism in which I take refuge. I believe in the stinginess of my soul, which seeks to take without giving. I believe in the goodness of others and that I must love them without fear and without betraying them, never seeking my own security. I believe in the religious life. I believe I wish to love a lot. I believe in the burning death of each day from which I flee, but which smiles at me, inviting me to accept her. I believe in God's patience as good and welcoming as a summer's night. I believe that dad is with the Lord in heaven. I believe that Father Duarte is there too, interceding for my priesthood. I believe in Mary, my mother, who loves me and will never leave me alone. And I believe in the surprise of each day, in which will be made manifest love, strength, betrayal, and sin, which will be always with me until that definitive encounter with that marvelous face, which I do not know, which always escapes me, but which I wish to know and love, Amen. That, my friends, is impressive. That is a very spiritual man, who is re- grounded in the, the love of the Father, and Mary, and Jesus. It's it just in the church, and you could, you could, you could, you could, in a sense, find something in his papacy already that extends. From every line that I just read. So that very very powerful. Of course, he was ordained, then he went to different, you know, what they call different training sessions. They had different turns, different places, internships. He finally made his final profession in 1973, and he became the provincial in nineteen seventy-three at the same time. Now this is the time of the Dirty War in Argentina, you know, where there, you know, the Peron's wife was picked out, and you know there was a military coup, and he's in the middle of this you know, as the provincial, and he's trying to, in a sense, fight also sort of the changes that are going on in society. He's dealing with, you know, with the, the the Marxist ideology, you know, the liberation theology. He's in the middle of this, and literally, he's moving residences as the coup is taking place down the street. And this isn't the second time he was in a war zone. He was at he was in Israel during Yom Kippur. This guy is you know you just when you go back and look at it you're like oh my goodness what he's been through. So then we see in that that particular time frame how he gets embroiled you know in some of the different factions. And this is one of the things that they were wondering, okay, you know, was he doing something bad? Was he involved with a group that was militaristic and violent and he wasn't. He was involved with a group called the Iron Gate, which was Perona's tendency, but he supported them with his faith and his chaplaincy. He did not in any, of, in any way get involved in anything, uh, you know, violent. But what was also fascinating is that during this time, being the provincial, he had to deal with the military. He had chaplains, Jesuits, who were chaplains of the military. He had Jesuits that were in the, the poor country, you know, working with you know, uh, you know, the poor, but also sort of being influenced by the Marxists. He had people who were betrayed. I mean, it was just remarkable. People who were disappearing. <coughs> and he was operating under this influence. And people would bring in refugees, people that they had to sneak out. And he said, I really didn't know what was going on and what I was doing until I had to figure out how to get rid of that person, that first person. And people would bring him people and he would like, you know, use the retreat house as a way of housing them and getting them out of there to save their lives, regardless of who they were. And sometimes they were Marxists, like he was friends with a lot of different interesting people. He was open to everybody. It's just astounding. And here's, here's an example, this quote, that one of the servants in the place where he was that tells about one of these incidences. He says, I was present when Bergoglio met a military officer from the Baron Air Base. I was asked to bring him and the soldier some food to his office. Bergoglio was telling him that the kid had to reappear because somebody was, the kid was arrested, They would just disappear. When the meeting was over, he rang the bell for me to go and collect the the trays. When I got there, he asked me to see the officer out. I thought that was unusual because he always saw guests out himself. When I went back to his office to get the trays, he was vomiting. When I went back to his office, he was vomiting. He said, sometimes when you're done talking with those people, you've got to throw up. He told me that it was a chess game. One bad move and you're toast. Three days later, Sergio showed up really badly beaten. He risked his life a number of times. I mean, it's just astounding when you look at some of the things he was involved in. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Okay, so here he is. He's the provincial, then he becomes the rector of the, the Colegio Maximo. You know, we can go into all the details of these things, but it's it's just, I mean, it's for your reading, right? But there was one amazing thing that happened was when he was sent to do his doctoral thesis in, in Germany, and he was sort of sent there to sort of transition. He'd already been through the Dirty War, you know, he'd been the provincial, he'd been the rector of this this college, and then they transitioned him out to Germany, and he didn't. He was sort of beside himself. What am I supposed to do? And this is when he had the devotion to Our Lady of the Knots. Which has become famous. You know, it's one of these things where all of a sudden the devotion to Our Lady of the Knots becomes international. Right? The undoer of the Knots. He says, O Virgin Mary, faithful mother who never refuses to come to the aid of your children, mother whose hands never cease to help because they are moved by the loving kindness that exists in your immaculate heart, cast your eyes of compassion upon me and see the snarl of Knots that exists in my life it goes on, right? But the idea is that he had this great devotion to Our Lady and she undid the knots. Now, he didn't stay long in Germany. He went back and he he was sent to the north of Argentina, a place called Córdoba. And he was a teacher. He taught chemistry. And he was there as a pastor and he was doing pastoral work. But he felt like he was exiled. He felt like he was like pushed to the side. He'd been the provincial, he'd been the head of this, this college. And so he felt a little bit like, okay, I'm here. You know, I, I'm I'm available as the Jesuits would say, I'm available for the mission. And then one day in May, we don't know the exact day. He was in Cordova, and there was a member of Opus Dei. Somebody told me there was a member of Opus Dei in a wheelchair, an older lady, who gave him a prayer card of then venerable Maria, He was going to be beatified on May 17th, 1992. And I have to say that was a memorable day day in my life because I brought the gifts up to St. John Paul II, which was awesome. But anyway, that's a side side note, but little do we know, okay, little do we know at that moment, so this woman gave him the prayer card and he himself tells the story, right, to somebody that I know in Rome. And he, take, he, he said, he took the prayer card, and he says, and I doubted that he was blessed. And then he prayed the prayer card, and then he said, if you're really a saint, get me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> now, that may sound bad. You know, like, just like, I think it was, I wanted to sugarcoat it, like, say, you know, help me out, you know. <laughs> that's the way I was told like, Okay, I don't know how authentic that, you know, this is secondhand. Yeah, secondhand. And so, so, he raised the prayer card. The next day, the nuncio came to town and they were friends, because he would pass through there, the airport or whatever, and they were conversing, talking, and the nuncio was telling him about different things. And as he's going and the book explains that part. doesn't explain this part. And he says, in that moment, the nuncio turns around as he's getting on the plane and says, oh, and by the way, You've been made the auxiliary bishop of Buenos Aires. And he was dumbstruck. So he believed, and he had that prayer card underneath the glass top of his desk for the rest of the time. That, in a sense, God called him to come back and he was very good friends with the cardinal. Cardinal arranged that, St. John Paul II appointed him the auxiliary bishop, then he became the archbishop and the cardinal archbishop. Buenos Aires and right, you know the sense that in a sense fills out that story but like what an amazing transition and I just find that so humorous right because our founder was to be beatified just a couple of days later right, and so he in a sense became a believer and right, he joking like I didn't believe that he was even blessed so it's a very powerful very powerful scene now we realize what happens and, and you know maybe you know we can go through the different things um, you know, just his character. You know, he's a man of of, of of simplicity. He's a man who loves the poor as we know, he's a man with a sense of humor, he's a man of surprises, he's a man of devotion, he's a man who always asks everybody, pray for me. Will you pray for me? I know an Argentinian who was there just a month after he was in Santa Marta business leaders meeting, and and he's like 6'5", and he said, he met Pope Francis, and Pope Francis said to him, are you praying for me? And he goes, all day long, Holy Father. A little bit of an exaggeration. But he goes, really? He says, yes. And he was like, really? And he's like started to cry. He was so moved. And he goes, and can you do me a favor? Can you, when you go back to where you're from, can you get everybody to pray for me? And he was just melting, you know, six five, you know. He's a man of prayer. We we could go into all these different things, but we don't really have time. I'll go more into the whole thing of, of his papacy a little bit with his documents, but we know that he was elected as the Pope on March third, the thirteenth of March in the year thirteen. I like numbers, three one, three, one, three. Very Trinitarian. But hey, whatever. So we realized that that wasn't the first time that he was supposedly the runner-up. Supposedly when Ratzinger was elected, there was, you know, this book explains the whole thing where there were a number of cardinals that got together, we 40, we can poll, and he was at lunch realizing he was gonna be elected. He was just like, oh, and this isn't 2005. And he supposedly, not exactly sure how it happened, but at one point, either he was voting or you know after he voted, he turned around and said, Vote for Brad Singer, don't vote for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Something like
0: that. I'm not exactly sure, but that's sort of how it was reported. And so then the, then the, then the tide shifted and he was now elected. But it was close. He was runner up, right? So, you know, he was really thinking about that a couple years later, but I don't think he didn't think he was gonna be elected because he was so old and they wanted somebody young. And anyway. We don't need to go into all of that. Now, one of the things that's amazing okay, is that he's elected and that it, it's, we understand his name even from the very start he talked about the Holy Spirit Cardinal Hummus whispered in his ear don't forget the poor and so he heard that and then he started thinking poor and then he heard Francis and then it all just fell into place supposedly he wanted to choose the name John the 24th if he were to be elected in that previous conflict that's a big number I like just Francis. <laughs> okay, so now in the last part of this talk, before we get into question and answers, uh, I'd like to make a brief comparison just as a way of putting him in the context of, of Benedict and John Paul, now Saint. Okay? I didn't include blessed, Paul VI, I just thought that would be too much. But you could, you could even put Paul Paul the Sixth in here. So, and the sheet that I have given you, right, it's a comparison of John Paul II, Benedict, and Francis with different factors. And this is just me, okay, I mean, this is just me, so I don't think it's biblical, you know. But if somebody has other ideas, let me know. That would be awesome to hear, because people have done this a number of times, and people have given me very interesting insights. Some of these insights are from other people. So, virtues. Right. Some say John Paul II was hope, Benedict was faith, and Francis was love. Right. They all have humility. But some have humility in a different way, right? And so one of the one of my friends, a priest friend, said, Well, but the, you know, the problem, Francis doesn't it, it seems like his humility is ostentatious. It's an ostentatious humility. And you know, really what did it, he's not. Doing this to be ostentatious. He does say he's a man of science. But he's doing it because this is what he thinks God, God wants him to do. And if it calls attention, uh, you know, to people bless me God. Right? So he'll do things knowing that it's going to stir. Right? He does a little lot. that doesn't take away from him being humility, you know, being humble. But also remember, he's Argentinian. Confident in addition there may be a little bit of Italian in there sorry to all you Italians out there I mean they're competent there's a certain passion in an Italian so I think that that obviously gives them certain flavor in terms of the faculty we want to look at the faculty of the soul we can say John Paul II was more the will Benedict was more the mind Francis is more the heart with respect to the new evangelization John Paul II proclaimed it some say Benedict articulated it Francis is initiating. In terms of the inauguration homily or the the, pre-conclave in the case of Benedict we know that John Paul II spoke about not being afraid and if you read that again, he mentions the power of Christ like ten times. So it really should have been be not afraid, we have the power of Christ. Benedict, dictatorship of relativism relativism and he talks about how Christ is the maturity and really the truth. And then of course Francis is to go out to the periphery with Christ and we'll see that in the second talk. His the speech that actually got him, I think which got him elected. As far as the country, we see Poland, Germany, Argentina, Argentine, obviously he's the Pope of the New World. The Second Vatican Council, we could say that there were two phrases from the Second Vatican Council which meant bringing the church up to date, and then we could say is Gaudium et spes, which John Paul II wrote. more which is, in a sense, uh, going back to the sources, and we could say that's Lumen Gentium and Sacrosanctum Concilium, on the liturgy by Benedict. And then, with respect to Francis, we have Agentis to the peoples, evangelize. Right, so these are just comparisons. They may not be like perfect, but. You know, just a certain reflection with respect to personalism we've been living in a world post-subjectivism uh, you know, I want to say post-subjectivism but like now personalistic and so John Paul II brought personalism to the front stage in his person and his writings Benedict XVI also articulated more precisely and integrated personalism but Francis, as we will see he is bringing it to reality Not to say that John Paul II didn't repeat, okay, but he is making everything its person to person, and you'll see this come out in the in the joy of the gospel. In terms of the reign, we have one of the longest, John Paul II, one of the shortest, Benedict XVI, and Francis has no problem saying, you know what, I only have I only have three years. (coughs) So we'll see. In terms of the words that they repeated, John Paul II, be not afraid, gift of self, dignity of the person, solidarity. Benedict XVI is a personal encounter with Christ, and Francis continued that personal encounter, but he his personal encounter to go out to the peripheries, to go out to the poor, what he calls the existential peripheries. And that's many different things, and, and we'll explain that later. The main challenge that John Paul II, you could say, faced was communism, and really some, any injustice. A pole said to me, a Polish priest said, any injustice. I said, okay, well, let's just say communism. And then John uh, Benedict Sixteenth was really focused on it, you know, in a sense, confronting relativism. And Francis, as you'll see, is constantly attacking individualism and self-centeredness. In terms of the mind, we have a philosopher, a theologian, and we have somebody who's more of an evangelizer, missionary, apologetics, more practical, right? He'll give you three points in his homily, and it's just interesting, right, to see the combination that God has given us. In terms of ecumenism, yes, they're all into it, but even I mean, even more so. I mean, that that Francis seems just like, I mean, even more intense about bringing this 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 in the sense work of ecumenism. The key ideas: John Paul II. Who is man? Theology of the body, divine mercy. Benedict talked a lot about beauty. Joy spoke a lot about joy. Jesus of Nazareth, sacred scripture. Verbum Domini, right? I think that was his masterful work, the, the word of the Lord. And then, of course, we see Francis with the poor also talks about beauty. He continues the theme of joy of Benedict. And we also have mercy. Not to say, again, that the others didn't, you know talk about these things, but these are the emphases. When we talk about his termado, we have I am all yours with John Paul II, Todas Tuus, cooperators in the truth, they define them, right? And then of course we have Miserando, aqueligendo for Francis, which was having, you know, having had mercy on me, he chose me. And that goes back to the famous commentary of St. Bede on the gospel of St. Matthew, for the conversion of St. Matthew, right? When he, when our Lord looks at Matthew, he has mercy on him, but he chooses him, right? In terms of retirement, we've seen that. John Paul II did not retire, Benedict XVI retires, and then Francis to be seen, right? But he's open to it. In terms of of Christ-centered, they're all very Christ-centered in a different way, very Marian-centered. In terms of the firsts, we see John Paul II as the first non-Italian pope in 400 years. Benedict the first German in centuries, and of course we know Francis is the first American from the New World, first Jesuit, and the first Francis. They're all men of prayer. They all pray. They're all men who have been involved in war, right? And that's that marks a person. And they all have different nicknames. I mean. You know, you called the John Paul II Lolek, which was like, you know, little Carl, Carol. And then you know they talk about, you know, Benedictus the Panzer. I mean you could go on, right? But but when when talked about Francis, he has a number of interesting sort of nicknames. They used to call him the Giaconda, right? Especially during the military dictatorship. You know, the Mona Lisa. That's the name for the Mona Lisa with a smile. But like you don't know what he's thinking. Because he's got to play off a lot of different factions, right? They called him the eel also, in the sense that he was able to get through and sort of work with all these different factions. It was just not easy. And of course, they called him the storm pilot during the difficult times of the dirty war. And in the seminary, they called him El Gringo. They would also call him something called La Carucha, the long face, because they said that he could give you, you know, the, you know, Give you this long, pious face. They would make fun of his long pious face. They also called him a funny name, and I've got to get a little bit more information as Irma La Dulce, right? Which is because he was so Mr. Pious. And he would hand down these harsh penalties with a little smile on his face. And he admits that maybe in that time maybe he was just a little too harsh and he did it poorly, and he was young. The last thing I wanted to mention before we get to questions and answers is there this Morris West, he's an author uh, you know f- since the sixties, right? And I found it fascinating. There's actually an article in the um, what they what it's called the Caternet, and he compares the different novels that he has written and he predicted three popes. He wrote The Shoes of the Fisherman. You haven't seen that, that movie with Anthony Quinn, awesome. 1963, written 1968, it talks about the Pope being chosen from behind the Iron Curtain and a Slavic person and his name is Kirill, not Carol, Kirill. It's an incredible, incredible movie, extremely well done. Okay, so then that's 1963 he writes that, He writes, in 1981, he writes The Clowns of God. And it's the scene where the Pope resigns. Now he wrote many novels, right? So you know, you figure, well, if you write 100 novels, maybe you get a (laughs) writer. So okay, I'll give you that. But The Clowns of God, and then the more fascinating one is 1988, 1998, he writes Eminence. And it's about a cardinal from Argentina, who's chosen to be the Pope, who was involved in the dirty war, and he goes on and on. And then he has a bad life, so he renounces it. He says, I don't want to take this. But then instead of him, they elect a Jesuit from Milan. So he's kind of got it. And I think he was probably thinking of maybe Cardinal Martini, who was the Jesuit Cardinal Archbishop Okay, in any event, that, that's sort of a, a, a whirlwind tour of our friend Jorge Mario Bergoglio. Now Francis, there are a lot of details, obviously. It's just hard to choose. And um, you know, at this point, maybe people might have some questions, some ideas. If you have a question that you, comes up later or whatever and you want to write it down in a card or you don't want to ask the question, feel free to give me that card. So at the end of the day, maybe we can come back to that or before the next session. Does anybody have any questions? Very beginning, like, no. This is just not the way to do it. And so there were a number of factions, and he stayed very clear of them. And he supported, in a sense, that group called the Iron Gate. And and, and it makes a very particularly precise statement saying he he was very clear about the fact that he was going to support them with his prayer, with his chaplaincy, with faith. So I, you know, to, not to go into it, it's, it's, it's kind of convoluted, it's complicated, very well done. It was one of the things that immediately the, the uh, journalist got in and said, oh, he was part of the air gate. But apparently there was a terrorist organization in Europe with the same name. And so everyone thought, oh, he was involved with terrorists. So the initial news story came out saying, he was involved with terrorists, and everyone thought, oh no. Cardinal George was kind of funny, he said, after they realized this guy might be the guy, all the Cardinals went to their people and said, do research on this guy, get on the internet, find out if there's anything that's gonna come out with the journalists. So this is precisely the thing they were worried about, but it turned out to be a mistake. So it's nicely done, And, and I think you can see that in the midst of all this, he literally is the eel, And you know, satisfying people, saving people, you know, and putting on faces, you know, really being tough with some people. I mean he told one military guy, he said, You know what? People go to hell for something like this. He says, If you don't if I don't see him out there, you will be held accountable for this. And a couple days later the guy would show up. But be. I mean it was it was I think something like seventy five hundred people disappeared in that time. In you know, an intense time. Great question. I'm uh, wondering how should we receive his statements that he makes to the media? Uh, some of them seem, you know, off-the-cuff remarks, you know, versus definitive statements he might make in the future, you know, versus ex cathedra statements. How to deal with his statements to the media? Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting in his papacy. I'll I will go into some of those things, in the letter talk, because he doesn't sit down and you know like write it out, like Benedict had it all prepared, polished and and he could literally say it from heart, what he had thought about, all the questions. He's just off, he is literally off the cuff. And I think I will show a number of incidences of the controversial ones where he will explain certain things and we know how the media takes it and spins it. Not to say that he's perfect either, right? But we'll go into that all We compare, because a lot of people think that, that Francis now is dealing with things that, that John Paul II and Benedict did not deal with. But if you really go back to their talks and their trips, I mean, I know a situation, for example, where John Paul II, I'm saying, went to a poor village in Africa, took off his ring, his papal ring, and gave it to the family. So, you know, it's not like he didn't do that, it's just that he wasn't emphasizing that. And, and obviously the poor and the, now the environment, we're gonna see an encyclical on the environment, and you know, it's not like they didn't talk about the environment, they certainly did, right? It's just, I think, people's perception, and, and, and people think that somehow with this new pope, he's gonna change doctrine or whatever. Uh, you know, if that happens, I'd be really surprised. Now, discipline, as they make the distinction, and I'll talk about that in my last talk, where he might change certain things of discipline, he already has. First thing he did was say, Cardinals, don't bring your red socks. And they didn't have to bring the red socks. And no more red shoes. I'm just wearing my regular shoes, in addition to the fact that he's flat-footed, so I can't imagine, (laughs) okay? So there are things that can be changed. There are things that have been emphasized. And at this point, God has chosen him from where he's from, from all of his experiences, to draw from who he is, to emphasize other things. And again, it's not like John Paul II didn't deal with that, but like he was dealing with totalitarianism. I mean, Benedict was dealing with the relativism. These are not easy issues for people to understand, but God was, I think, setting up the church to facilitate the stage for the new evangelization, Francis, in a sense, to bring about evangelization. Again, not that John Paul II didn't evangelize, right? I I mean, he went to so many countries, I think he had 101 foreign trips. It was astounding. Or that he wasn't personally treated everybody. I've met him four times, personally. You know, I'm sure people in this room, many people, it was just astounding how many people that saw him and that touched him, kissed him, saw him on television, heard him speak, by television or internet, <laughs> it's just astounding. So it's it, you know in a way you can make these comparisons because it's so easy, because he's in this moment and with more media and maybe more internet and you know more information. So you know as I think it's just well let's take a look at that. I think one thing that we see with the Pope is that he's not afraid to confront anything. He will challenge. He will take up any challenge. And I see that as, a, as just a beautiful thing. He's wide open to whatever happens. Like he met the transgender man on the 24th of January. You know, the, of January. Yeah. like, okay, well, what was that? And I think what he's saying in these things is he's, and I'll get to this later, but he's talking about the person. This person, not the crowd, not that country. And he's trying to say, no, it's all personal. One on one. I haven't. No, I haven't planned on talking about his liturgy, but I. You know, it is interesting because, in a sense, you see that Benedict was used by God to sort of, in a sense, restore the liturgy. Right to bring back the extraordinary form to give give a, a certain place for that, and, and and you know, Francis has had some issues with one group. I, it's not worth going into, I don't think. I mean, but in a sense, he's not shutting it down, but he's definitely not em- emphasizing it. And even making the emphasis of the poorer garments, in a sense, Benedict chose beauty. He did that on purpose. He chose wonderful things, like the ermine. And he did that not because he was like a fashion statement. He did that because he wanted to show the world what beauty was and the beauty of the liturgy. Francis is trying to make a statement, because they see him all the time, saying, well, he's more simple, he's got more simple vestments, and he's emphasizing more poverty. In a sense, at the expense of the liturgy. Now, I mean, you know, he does the Mass, but it's just not his forte. And it's not something that he emphasizes. You know, he relies on the people who are around him, you know, to, to, to guide him, but it's not something that he feels like is his agenda. Now, again, Benedict did a lot in that, and that was his—that was his gift too. Sacred Scripture and liturgy, in addition to Christ. In Sacred Scripture, okay. did I win again? <laughs> That's what I always tell my students. I always win. I answer every question, <laughs> and they know everything. Else. Okay, so we'll take a break here and we'll begin again at 10.15.